Would you join me for a moment of prayer? God of love, Lord of hosts, who tells us over and over again not to fear and to take courage because amazing things are coming that you have been working on. Open our hearts so that we may properly receive you in your coming and prepare for the ways that you will transform us. Remember all that you, we remember all that you have done and search for remnants of that glory of old among the hearts of those around us and where we stand now, all of us in dire need of your spirit's rejuvenation. We seek you and we find you. We look around and realize standing idle is no way to prepare for your banquet feast. We must keep getting ready. We must restore our houses of worship, these places where you enter in and dwell among us, and the places with, those places within our hearts which you abide to their former glory by that example that you set for us in Christ Jesus. That former glory that Jesus is, the glory of that word which once dwelled among us, the glory we witnessed in that baby is how we are to live and love and change the suffering we see, living in faith and in dedication to bringing about your kingdom in our world, waiting for you to utilize us to make that happen, hearts eager for you to come in and change everything. We must get ready, for our vision of what that looks like may be growing dim with time. Who among us remembers it now? In Jesus, your promise, God, and in Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit, we are able to continue to re-experience the closeness of a relationship with you, resembling that closeness the Israelites had with their God who rescued them from Egypt, the God who brought them out of years of exile to rebuild, the, rebuild their temple, and who saved them again and again. It is through the avenues of love that we have now in Jesus and in the Spirit dwelling in us that you are going to bring about your kingdom restoring that closeness, which we need desperately to rejuvenate our spirits and make this place of worship a banquet table prepared where all are welcome to dine and reap the blessing of salvation and of your amazing presence. You are about to make all of this happen, Lord, right before our eyes. You've already been doing it. God, who asks us to take courage and to not be afraid, be with us throughout the big changes you're making in and around us. Make a place in us, transforming everything. We will need to be brave to embrace all that you have set before us, but we can always find our strength and comfort in you, in our times of uneasiness, fear, and self-shielding in response to your changes. Help your people to take courage. As your changing revolution comes about this Christmas, your changes will shake the heavens and the earth, shake the seas and the dry land and all the nations and all of us, as the splendor of your love will overturn every table. It is with your spirit within us that we find ourselves shaken by your confounding and incredibly fierce, unfailing love. Train us to be ready to receive it and be with us in all we do. Amen.
just arrived, and with your first cry, you fit right into their arms. Just like you did in the stables, come do it all again. There's room for you.
grateful for those voices, for those leaders, for yours, your presence, and your attention to this time that we've been given. It's such an important thing when we gather as the people of God to listen together for God's word in the silences, in the prayers, as well as in what we say and share together. We're turning in our Bibles today to what is probably a less well-worn part. The prophet Haggai in the Old Testament between Zechariah and Zephaniah. I'll give you a minute. And as we make our way to Haggai, we're going to be reading an excerpt from chapter 2 of his prophetic word to the leaders of the community and to all those who would hear. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jotzedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. In this, in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. I dare say in the prophetic roll call, Haggai might not be highest on your list, at least as high as some others when we talk about the prophets. Even when scholars speak in the sort of scholarly shorthand, some will refer to the Old Testament prophets in two categories. There are major prophets, like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah. Major because their books are long. And then there are minor prophets. Haggai is referred to as a minor prophet. And I've often wondered, you know, so many years later, what it would be like to walk into a space and realize you're known as a minor prophet. What do you do with the designation, with a name like that? It's sort of like in Jesus' collection of the 12 disciples, there's one disciple named James the Less. Boy. How did he 
draw that short straw. Probably because he was either younger or shorter. Some people call him James the Younger. Some people uh, call him James the Smaller. I call him Little James. Set him apart from Big James. James the Less was important enough. Never forget this. Important enough to be called by Jesus by name. When Jesus gathered the twelve around and said, I call you friends. And if tradition actually holds up, we find James the Less's destiny to be a powerful one. He was martyred in Jerusalem, says the tradition. Stoned for refusing to recount his faith. And when he was still living, then they delivered a coup de grace with a club. And that killed him. The club became a symbol of James's witness. And in some of the earliest sort of iconography, there's a club somewhere in the picture. But over time, that club was transformed into a symbol of healing, uh, ultimately into the pharmacist pestle. And so he's become the patron saint of pharmacists. Kimmy, looking at you. Ned. Warren. Shannon. And, and sometimes I know pharmacists in their customer service posture probably feel like they're being beaten by clubs as well. Be that as it may. This one that history sometimes has made less is a disciple of Jesus. He was Jesus' friend. He gave everything for his faith. This is true of you too. There is nothing less about you. Even though history may not be remembering you or listing you among the greats or putting you out front, all who accept the call of Jesus, all who receive his invitation to friendship, all who give what they have in service of what he has called you to makes you great in the eyes of our Lord. So take the scholarly designations with a grain of salt. Haggai is technically a minor prophet. However, there's really no such thing as a minor prophet. It's the same thing, actually, when I talk to people and they say, I'm getting minor surgery. Does that even make sense? Minor, minor surgery is what other people get. When it is you, it's the only you you've got. It's the only body you've got. And so sometimes when I sit with people in pre-op, they'll sort of be self-soothing by saying, shouldn't you be visiting someone else? This is just minor surgery. And I understand that desire to cultivate some confidence and calm, and when I show up, it is not my job to undo that. But I do want to reframe it. There are some surgeries that are very well-practiced. That's the word I use. They're well-practiced. We have an experience base, and we have a track record where medically, statistically, we can foresee certain outcomes with a high likelihood, with a high probability. And really good practitioners still take a lot of time explaining the risks that are attached, even to minor surgeries. 
And so people will lean on that word minor in some way to, to, to calm their anxieties in that place when you're putting your body in the hands of others. But I stand by my statement, there is no such thing as minor surgery. There's no such thing as a minor prophet. Someone like Haggai is speaking critical words into God's people, into courtyards, and into marketplaces, offering guidance and offering correction and offering a renewed vision in changing and sometimes tumultuous times. This is an important word for God's people then, and this is an important word for us today. The problem is we don't know a whole lot about Haggai. We know his ministry, at least the ministry that's recorded here, lasted maybe four months from mid-August to mid-September in the year 520 B.C. in the second year of Darius I, Darius the Great. And so just a brief history lesson to take you back almost 20 years before the Persian king Cyrus had conquered Babylon and had returned or at least opened the door for all those who had been in exile since the Babylonian exile, including many Jews, to return to their homeland from their places of exile. The Persians did appoint a governor named Sheshbazar, and he began work to rebuild the temple, but the work stopped in some way. So when you read the book of Ezra, the first five, six chapters, it'll tell you that story. In Haggai's day, then, when people saw the temple, they saw a work in process. They saw the incompleteness. It was still as much kind of in the drawing boards as it was in completion. And so Haggai opens his entire book commenting on that reality. And he insists that the time is now. Even though there are many who say the time is not right to make the investment and to rebuild the Lord's house. And I'm sure they had their arguments. They're probably not all that different from the arguments we would make today. There's not that much of a difference in ancient times in our own when it comes to sort of spending in ways that benefit all or even more altruistically benefit others. The market's down. Inflation's up. Futures are shaky. Economic growth is stagnating. There's just not enough money to go around, so on and so forth. But Haggai speaks boldly to them. He addresses the governor of Judah, Zerubbabel. He addresses the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, and a remnant of the people who are there. He had just confronted them in chapter 1 about the conflict in their values. They were going to great lengths to rebuild their own homes. He says, but you're making no effort to build up and rebuild the house of God. So eventually, verse 14 of chapter 1 says, they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. But even then, the work was discouraging, slow going, difficult, inefficient, expensive. And so Haggai takes a step back and he invites those uh, among them who were old and advanced enough in years to remember back when said, you remember Solomon's temple? You remember that house of old before it was brought to the ground by the Babylonians? What we're building now doesn't compare, does it? It's just not the same. Too many changes. It's too incomplete. And he can acknowledge that the way things are 
is not the way things were. It's under finance now. There's no Ark of the Covenant. There are no carved cherubim to guard that Ark. There are no stone tablets. There's no molten sea. None of those original artifacts that made the Temple of Solomon so grand are even present anymore. And still in the face of all that lack, Haggai speaks a bold word of encouragement. I think it's something we need to hear in every generation. If you can turn in your Bibles, not now, back to to 1 Chronicles chapter 28, when David is talking to his son Solomon, who built that first grand temple, he says these words, be strong, courageous, and do the work. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord, my God, is with you. The Lord God will not forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. And Haggai says, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people in the land. Be strong in the work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. I am with you. Haggai promises that the Lord promises to be near. And to be near in the work of the believers. God is present. God is with us. That is the good news. And it should sound very familiar. The very name of Jesus that we learn in Matthew chapter 1 that echoes the prophet Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 is Emmanuel. God with us. And Haggai assures his listeners that God is present in their labor. The Lord blesses their work with God's own Spirit. And the results of the labor are going to be assured, even if in the middle of it all, the building isn't the grand spectacle that it once was. Even in the middle of it all, if some of the angles are a little cockeyed. Even in the middle of it all, if the candle doesn't light. Even in the middle of it all, if the bass misses a few notes. Even in the middle of it all, when we can't see the glory that God is already deposited. That success is assured, not because of our ingenuity, but because of God's ongoing presence. And so I wonder if this is a claim that we're willing to grasp as we set about doing work as believers, as we set about doing work as a community of believers. Whatever it is that God has called us to, whatever the projects are, whatever the tasks are, no matter how critical we may be, No matter how less than splendid our efforts may look in the moment, work done by the people of God can be done first with joy because the promise of God's glory resides within. It is not our glory. It is God's. And then sometimes every once in a while, by God's grace, we get to see a glimmer of that glory in what it is that we do. Sometimes we're permitted to see God at work through us. That's how Psalm 90 sings about it. Let your work be manifest in your servants, your glorious power in your children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and prosper the work of our hands. Prosper the work 
of our hands. That is a hopeful prayer. That the God has called you by name and the Christ who calls you friends is co-laboring with you to accomplish the purposes with the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal God's glory and reflect God's love into this community and out into the world. Can you see that? Can you see it in your life? Hope at its heart really has two dimensions. The first is a vision for what can be. And the second dimension of hope is being able to perceive the path to get there. And this is really much easier when we're talking about bricks and mortar projects. Right? We have architects and designers who can help put that whole picture on paper. And then we have logisticians who can help us kind of figure out how to get all the pieces and parts mobilized to get the job done. But if we limit our vision as believers to simply the bricks and mortar dimensions of God's work, we're going to miss the daily point for us in the daily living of our lives. We might build a church building once in a generation, or, or three, or four, but every day, maybe the temple that you are building is feeding the hungry, or supporting and advocating for the poor, or for the marginalized, or for the stranger. Perhaps the temple that you are building has to do with caring for your own households and your own families. Perhaps the temple that you're building is being kind and loving as you make your way through your daily vocations, letting God's work be seen in the way we cultivate relationships in the world. Because what we build is really found in relationship with God and with one another. That's at the heart of what Jesus taught about love. The Apostle Paul says it as explicitly possible as he can in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field. God's building. And a few verses later he says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst. And that's you, plural. Y'all, collectively, are God's building. Singular. We are the temple. We are the temple that reveals God's glory. And some of the angles are off. Some of the windows aren't necessarily where they should be. Some of the pieces and parts remain uh, a little incomplete. I'll grant you that. And I'm sure you see the same as you look up in this pulpit. Perhaps even what we build isn't as grand in our imaginations as what we remember. Either in this community or in any of the exemplars for faith who set the standard for us. Maybe we don't feel we could ever live up to that. And that is true if we rely only on ourselves. But what we hear today is a challenge to grow in faith and in trust that says this is your time. This is your chance to grow in faith. This is your chance to be a part of that great 
temple that God is building in which the Spirit resides and in which God's glory shows out in the world. This is your chance to be a window through which God shines individually, all together. This is our time. And if Haggai's speaking truthfully, when it all comes together, when it comes to what God is building, we haven't seen anything yet. Are we tracking? There's more. I don't know if this is good news, but it's news. There's another assurance about living into this vision in the world. With God's presence comes shaking. A whole lot of shaking. And I don't think the shaking stopped in Haggai's time. And it didn't stop in 2020. Then, until now, time and again, through pandemics and political crises and war and economic pressure and every personal loss that we've shared individually and collectively, we know the relentlessness of the shaking. That's why from time to time I turn back to the question that Psalm 11.3 asks so powerfully, when the foundations are shaking, what will the righteous do? So for 30 seconds in silence, I want you simply to inventory your life. Where have you been shaken? Where are you shaking? For me, it doesn't take very long at all for that reservoir of, of emotion to sort of rise up pretty close to the surface. That's why in the, the week between Christmas and New Year, I'm taking three days. I'm going on a retreat from my family, from, from everything. I'm staying in a hermitage up in Lewisburg, in my words, uh, to, to our ministry cohort, to cry and to pray because there's a lot of shaking. This is the good news. In a little while, Haggai says, in a little while, the desire of nations shall come. The desire of all nations. This is where our hope resides, when we find ourselves waiting and yearning for that little while, the Messiah, the Christ, God with us comes to visit us, all of us, as this prophet tells us. Jesus is not for just one kind of people, and it's not for those who have it all put together. He's not for those who are squeaky clean and well put together. Jesus is for everyone, for all nations, for all people for the world for happy people and for grieving people and for anxious people for lonely people struggling people for us and the shaking it wakes us the shaking provokes us might 
compel us to look up or to make a change, to do what needs to be done, to correct our course, maybe to wait. It is a prompt to listen again and to look again for the God who is with us. In the chaos that is inevitable in living us, uh, in living this life, God is making a way for the Messiah to come to us through it all. And when we find the faithfulness of God to the promises that God has made in surprising ways sometimes our own lives are remade and rebuilt. And we are stronger. Abraham Heschel observed one time that faith like Job's to which we'd all aspire, right? Faith like Job's cannot be shaken because it is the result of having been shaken. In a little while, I will shake the nations and the desire of nations shall come. Best of all, Haggai tells us, the temple that God would have us to build is a place of peace. Some translations render this word prosperity in Haggai chapter 2. But the word is peace. The word is shalom. Shalom is not fodder for the prosperity preachers of the world telling you that if you say the right words or do the right things, then of course there is simply going to be some sort of response from heaven that inoculates us or immunizes us from pain or poverty in the world. Shalom is something altogether different. Shalom communicates a wholeness, a wellness, a security, an integrity, and a completeness. And so, surely Haggai was calling on the people to do their best. And from the outside looking in, the temple would look better. But whatever they were able to accomplish with the silver and with the gold and with the artisans and all the rest, that would be transient compared to what God was doing at the foundation. Not of the physical structure, but of the people. God was providing God's own peace. And that's the Lord's divine decision. When Jesus looked at his disciples, he said, My peace I leave with you. My peace I leave. I give to you, and I don't give to you as the world gives. That peace always comes as a gift, and it's received in humility, and it's delivered by the durable love of God. A love that believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The love that does not fail. Thanks be to God that the desire of all nations is making a way to us and to the world in the midst of the shaking. Thanks be to God for the gifts of hope and joy, of peace and of love. Thanks be to God for the promise of a future in him. Amen. Mary, Martha, and Courtney lead us now in a time of reflection. I invite you, as you open your hands and open your hearts, as you bring your offerings and worship and practice your generosity, to offer much more.
to listen to how God is calling out of you a response, perhaps to take a first step and to trust Jesus with your future. Perhaps it is to return to a promise you made a long time ago, to take a step into the life of this community as a member, or perhaps it is to set out into the world and you need this congregation's blessing and help to fulfill it, whatever it may be, as they lead us now, let us respond.